Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Coming this Tuesday is the Ringer's third annual NBA Palooza, celebrating the tip-off of the 2019-2020 NBA season. Make sure you're subscribed to the Ringer's YouTube channel so you don't miss our day-long live stream, including the premiere of the new season of NBA Desktop, the fourth installment of our Take Hunter series with a surprise twist, the unveiling of the Bill Simmons' Lakers wine bottle team, and a live Ryan Russillo podcast to go along with so much more. Again, you can check all that out at youtube.com slash The Ringer. David, we're going to talk about the New York Times crediting other publications' scoops. But if we were going to carefully credit all the influences of this podcast, what I want to know is, who would we cite? <laughs> I cite? Um, well, I mean, it's, uh, I, I'm not, I'm definitely not like failing to hyperlink from like Splinter News anymore. Thanks a lot, Geo Media. Uh, I'm sure, I feel like it's, I feel like who I'm not citing, I can just like point fingers out, like, like, I'm just gonna blame like Geo and, and Trank. Uh, Trunk? Uh, uh, Trunk, sorry. That, yeah. that, uh, that, 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 not, not with that new, the New York Magazine pay, firewall or whatever. I can't, I'm, I can't fail to hyperlink to them anymore either. I just, I have, I have no one to steal from anymore. My life's really gotten terrible over here. Trank is what Geo Media shot into Splinter, I think, to, uh, <laughs> yeah. put it away. Now, I just feel performatively, you and I are often, um, channeling people we heard in our childhood. For instance, when I'm, oh, yeah, you know, okay. re- reading these setups, right? I'm sort of, unconsciously doing every straight arrow newsman and play-by-play announcer with a really obvious haircut that I saw during my childhood. Who are, who are you doing? Who are you riffing on? Oh my gosh. I have no idea. I hope somebody out there listening has an answer for this question because I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm doing, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm like Ed McMahon with too much airtime over here. I'm like, I'm just trying to, I'm, <laughs> no, I'm, no, no, I'm, no, I'm no. trying to ride, I'm trying to ride shotgun and they can, they keep trying to cut the commercial because I won't shut up. <laughs> we are the outbound link of media podcasts. This is the press box, a part of the ringer podcast network. Hello, media consumers, Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here. We got lots and lots of stuff to get to today. We'll talk about whether the New York Times is giving proper credit to its competitors' scoops. We'll talk about the Democratic presidential race that somehow turned into Tulsi Gabbard versus Hillary Clinton. Plus, Donald <laughs> Trump invites world leaders to a sleepover and the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But, David, I think we got to start with the sultry tango of presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg and Facebook overlord Mark Zuckerberg. Because on Monday, Bloomberg reported that Zuckerberg and his wife, Priscilla Chan, sent Buttigieg's campaign recommendations on who to hire earlier this year, once again putting Zuck and Facebook in the middle of a presidential election. The two staffers who'd been named are both working in data analytics for Buttigieg's campaign. Bloomberg reporters Tyler Pager and Kurt Wagner note that Zuckerberg and Buttigieg, quote, overlapped at Harvard. And Buttigieg was friends with two of Zuckerberg's roommates. He was also one of Facebook's first 300 users. A spokesman for Zuckerberg and Chan told Bloomberg that the couple has not decided who to support for president. I guess the first question is, is this a big deal or will this potentially turn into a big deal? 
Um, well, I was just having a spirited conversation with our dear friend Justin Charity before we came on the air, and he would argue that it's not a big deal at all. Um, or at least the people making it out to be a big a, a big deal are either doing it wrongheadedly or, or in bad faith. I partly agree with that. I don't think that this story, at least the degree to which I understand the details, to be a particularly big deal. Purely on the merits, I don't think it's particularly surprising or galling that a potential presidential candidate or a, you know, a uh, high-ranking executive would send an email to a uh, you know a, a high a high-placed acquaintance in a in a field that they're looking to hire in to get some advice on who to hire, right? I mean, that, I don't think in any other walk of life that would be particularly shocking. Um, obviously, there's a little bit more uh, sensitivity here, and there's a there, and, and this is where it gets into the into the questionable area. You know, this is our presidential election, and and it and it's incredibly bad form for Mark Zuckerberg to either be uh suddenly trying to influence it which i guess is the accusation or on the other hand if he's oblivious to it it's a it's incredibly bad form for him to be oblivious to it after what we went through <laughs> in the last election election cycle right absolutely i don't know what is is he's either self-interested in putting a big tech friendlier candidate in the white house or he's just too stupid to understand the uproar that would come out with him helping staff up a candidate Right. I I want to no. give him the benefit of the doubt and say that it's number one. But I, I guess there's a chance it's number two. That just seems really, really dense. I think on the, uh, yeah, I think the dense, uh, yes. I mean, I think uh, on the Zuckerberg side, I'm not sure that it matters much one way or the other. It matters, you know, historically and factually. But I think his density has become sort of the narrative that we're, that everyone is so outraged by, right? That, like, it's not... I don't think that there's a lot of people that think he, like, was hatching a scheme with Cambridge Analytica so much as he was just, like, so cravenly driven by money and blind to everything else that he allowed things like Cambridge Analytica to happen, right? I mean, it, so it's so it's the obliviousness, defined whichever way you choose to do it, that that is sort of the central problem. I think there's another big problem for Buttigieg. And, and well, I think actually there's two problems. For, I, I don't know that, again, that this actually substantively is a problem for his campaign, but, but here's, here's where it gets a little bit tricky for him. One, I think that for the people who, a lot of the people who are really uh, outraged at this story, or just the people who are paying a lot of attention to this story, for, those, for a lot of people, Buttigieg sort of wandered into, um, how to put this tactfully, uh, fuck that guy territory in the last debate. <laughs> uh, there are, I think, I think a lot, I think there's a lot of very, I think there are a lot of very liberal voters, uh, who, a very, very a very active voter block, uh, very engaged voter block, who were very interested in him as an outsider candidate and have been disappointed that he has seemingly staked out this territory as like, as like, you know, a, a sort of red state moderate, you know, I mean, that, he, that he's sort of a pre, like a technocrat, but still a moderate. Um, and I think that there's a lot of disappointment circular, circling around him, even as he seems to be attracting a more and more affluent um, uh, support, support from a more affluent block. I mean, he's raising money hand over fist. That's the one thing. And then I think there's the more meta thing where, where you can, uh, more meta point where, listen, his origin story uh, his campaign narrative, uh, however you want to say it, it's a sort of a thing of beauty, the sort of thing that all potential presidential candidates or political candidates wish they had. Um, 
But the real thing and beauty of it isn't the specifics of the narrative, which is beautiful, which is great. You know, the 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 military stuff is sexuality, all all that stuff is, is it makes for a really impressive origin story. But the best, but but the most important part about it is that it never came across as a story, right? It always came across as just the unvarnished truth about this guy, and. I think this the, the, this is a very subtle point, I guess, but 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 this story kind of runs the risk of putting the lie to that, right? That like if we had been presented uh, with Pete Buttigieg as like a college buddy of Mark Zuckerberg, then that's a totally that's a totally different candidate, right? That's um, that's someone who we would approach with a, t- a whole different level of trepidation and uncertainty, and I think that yes. that's I think that that's for him more so, more so than like what. Than the Facebook influence, I think that it's just sort of like a counter narrative of of a quiet counter narrative of of who this Pete Buttigieg guy is. I think that's exactly right because I think the kind of the rep you get from being potentially an extra in the social network, you know, the a guy who was of that crowd is a lot more dangerous to me with rank and file Democrats. Forget the people we follow on Twitter here for a second who are you know, up in arms about this, but actual rank and file Democrats. I think it's, I think that's more dangerous than this guy is talk to the guy who runs Facebook, which I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not sure that I'm sure maybe big breaking up big tech is a popular idea, but I'm not sure like in just people who use Facebook to post pictures, of their grandkids and re and watch better O'Rourke going viral. I'm not sure that Facebook has that kind of, you know, poisonous kind of rep to it but you're right understanding that oh he was one of these guys who was who was friends with the guys in the zuckerberg dorm room he was a he was an initial user he's from that world yeah maybe maybe that does have a thing i think almost the facebook part of this by the way is a distraction can you if we can we just do the old media version of this imagine a republican presidential candidate reaching out to Rupert Murdoch or vice versa and, and Murdoch saying, here are a couple of former Fox news people that I think would be really good members of your comms team with Fox yeah. being the place you have to play as a Republican candidate. People would go crazy, right? I mean, that would just, that would be seen as tipping the scales or putting your finger on the scales. Would it not? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I do think there's a subtle difference. <laughs> I'm saying subtle difference. I do think there is a there is a worth a, a, a distinction that's worth making. Even though, even though you're absolutely right, everything that you said is true. I do think that, like, when you're looking for a when you're looking for people who have worked in tech and communications to reach out to somebody who's the head of that field who you might know is is is, a, is there's a little bit of a distinction between just reaching out to a power broker. And I saying, know. who do you want me to hire? But but I guess but I guess Mark that's Zuckerberg, the same person. You're right. I mean, you're right. that's not that's not just you know your friend who's good good with the internet knows how to set up your router or whatever, right? That's like the guy who runs freaking Facebook. You're right. You're right. You're right. I mean, that, that, I think I think okay, yeah, I I, I, I give you that. And it, and it's and it wasn't to me reading the the Bloomberg article. It seems like Zuckerberg and Chan were pretty actively providing names of people right it wasn't just like a phone you know hey you know anybody or something like that they were they were taking a very you know sort of active interest in 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 throwing some names out there yeah the um the other thing to remember with all this david is that this is all coming when zuckerberg is in a sort of passive aggressive war with elizabeth warren in march warren released a big proposal to break up big tech 
making the case that Facebook, Google, Apple, et cetera, et cetera, uh, are limiting competition, that they are driving income inequality, that they're manipulating democracy. We had that infamous leaked Q&A a while back with Facebook employees where Zuckerberg said it would, quote, suck if Warren were elected. <laughs> so now he has been revealed a while back, but has been revealed to be helping, you know, suggest staff members for the candidate that is maybe the biggest danger to Warren in Iowa. So again, that's kind of an accident of circumstance that's happened since then, right? <laughs> but it sure does set up neatly um, to put him right in the middle of this thing again. Yeah, and, and, and Buddha Judge went went particularly. Uh, I mean, went uh, went after Warren. Um, with particularly, I guess, surprising flair at the, during the last debate. Um, I, I think that all of that lines up pretty neatly if you want to, if you want to kind of put those pieces together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. It's to me, the question you hit on it earlier is really interesting, which is how much, how much of an image has Buttigieg carved out with potential voters as, and again, a very narrow slice of potential voters, what we're talking about, you know, he's he's doing well in Iowa, doing a lot better in Iowa than he's doing nationwide. But how much of an image has he carved out by being this what Michael Kinsley once called the nice young man full of ideas that these kind of stories won't stick to him, that it really won't make a difference. Like you said, like, oh, wow, he's, you know, an acquaintance with the guy who runs Facebook. And it's like and these guys are talking about staffing up the campaign he's got this he these are his policy ideas how much of his image will allow him to overcome stories like that or just kind of slide around him do you think i mean i think just like with anything else um sort of like with the, the conversation we had about warren last week i think that um you know i don't have an answer for that other than that like the answer to it will be incredibly telling right i mean the response is going to be almost more important than the than the charge here and um, especially for Buttigieg, who hasn't, um, you know, uh, hasn't dealt with a lot of like hand to hand combat, um, at least no. uh, combat directed at him in this campaign. It'll be interesting to sort of see how, what, you know, what his campaign's next move is. Yeah. And I guess it's it's probably kind of a backhanded compliment when they start attacking you <laughs> because it means they're worried about you. There was a Suffolk poll last week. That had Buddha Judge at at thirteen percent in Iowa, but it but listen how tight this is. Biden eighteen percent, Warren seventeen percent, Buddha Judge thirteen percent. So you know that's an indication again that Iowa to me is is such a key to unlocking this thing, right? Because if Buddha Judge wins Iowa, that just screws everything up for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. It screws things up for Joe Biden. It screws things up for Elizabeth Warren who could win Iowa and New Hampshire back-to-back -back and be pretty unstoppable. It certainly screws up things for any loss, screws up everything for Biden. Uh, it screws up things for a lot of what are right now second- and third-tier candidates because Buttigieg would just take all that oxygen away and most, if not all of them, would drop out. So he um, he's in a fascinating place. It just It just feels like... I don't know. It's funny watching the media coverage of this campaign. It feels like we can just see when the camera lens moves to the right or to the left, you know, it was Biden, <laughs> Biden, Biden, and then it was Warren and it's still pretty much on Warren, but then it's almost like it just moved a quarter inch over to kind of put 
Warren and Buttigieg in the same frame. Maybe I'm over imagining that. Well, that's literally what happened at the last debate, right? That it was that Buttigieg. I mean, I think <laughs> other true. people other people pointed that out, but the camera sort of panned back, and suddenly instead of like the three in the middle, there was four, and Buttigieg was the fourth. So, um, you know, I, I guess it shouldn't be surprising that the kind of media lens is sort of turning in his direction too. I wonder how. I mean, and I wonder how much of it is like kind of a specific exercise in like. Oh, you know, in newsrooms where they're saying, you know, Buttigieg isn't going anywhere. We should actually like let's let's do some digging. Or if this has been going on the whole time, it's sort of it's or if it's if there's oppo research involved. I mean, there's a lot of questions here. Yeah, I mean, I think he first invited scrutiny, right, or got a lot of scrutiny with the police shooting in South Bend. You know, and I think that was that was kind of like that was the first moment when nice young man, uncomplicated nice young man, began to seep away at least a little bit with the press. Then maybe that faded away because he wasn't seen as such a threat, or the real story was that Warren was in first place, or, or you know, surging toward first place. But now we're back in the scrutiny zone. I don't know. That this will be fascinating, though. And again, I'm just I can't decide if this is going to be one of those things we talk about this week and never speak of again, <laughs> or for if you know, or for or for this is in the back half of the show on Friday, and I could see it going either way. Again, I'm just not totally convinced that there is a specter of that the whole specter of big tech Zuckerberg Facebook is yet that salient among the broader democratic voter base as it is again, amongst Bernie voters, Warren voters, certain fired up liberal Democrats, but we will see. All right, David time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Please send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received. David, we missed this one last week, but His Holiness, Pope Francis, had a tweet. The Pope wrote, Today we give thanks to the Lord for our new hashtag saints. They walked by faith, and now we invoke their intercession. The only problem was when the Pope or whoever tweets for the Pope typed hashtag saints, the New Orleans Saints fleur-de-lis emoji uh, appeared in the tweet. That led to a bunch of good stuff. Uh, thank you, because that last guy was probably a Falcons fan. Uh, another <laughs> one says Saint, Saints fans took their officiating complaints all the way to the Vatican. And finally, gonna just throw your Cardinals under the bus? Question mark. That's the capital <laughs> C Cardinals. Ha, ha, ha. Thanks to Adam Hainsfurther for that one. David, remember the musician known as Shaggy? Of course. Shaggy? early 2000s thing this was an all-time layup because last thursday a headline in the daily dot read shaggy says an online scammer is impersonating him an online scammer is impersonating shaggy it was an overworked twitter joke to write do we want to just you want to just keep going here do i even need to say it it Um, it wasn't me it it wasn't me yeah thanks to uh (laughs) a whole bunch of people (laughs) with that um rob harvilla the ringer's very own had the tasteful version. So what he's saying is dot, 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 there we go. Thanks to a whole bunch of people, Asif Doja, Dukas, the Lucas, Ben Owen, Ben Gibson, and Vince Parachi for that. And finally on Friday, the legendary law and order actor, Sam Waterston <laughs> was arrested at a climate protest at the U S Capitol building in Washington. And boy, was that fertile soil for Twitter jokes, e.g., in the criminal justice system, the interests of capital and the fossil fuel industry are represented by two separate yet equally important groups. Uh, I also like this one. 
at the 50 minute mark, we're going to find out they got the wrong guy. Thanks to Matthew <laughs> Zeitlin for that. If you think the original law and order is still prime comic fodder, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. All right, David, time for the notebook dump. And I want to talk to you about giving proper credit to other journalist stories. Cause we had a conversation in our little journalism kingdom last week that got kicked off by a piece in vice's motherboard by Lorenzo Franceschi Beaker, I'm sorry, Bickeri. I hope I'm saying that right. And Jason Kobler also. I'm hope I'm saying that right. We'll put it on the we'll put it on the feed in any case. Uh, and before we have this conversation, I think it's worth saying there are two parts to this issue. One is the very legitimate. The New York Times took my story and didn't give me credit part. Right. And the second is the deeper psychology of journalists, where something that goes with the job is feeling that you're never properly given enough credit for how great you are. <laughs> I just I just feel that is a common condition among all journalists. Anyway, yes. we'll separate those two things out. First, the legitimate stuff. The motherboard authors got a hold of a memo that Phil Corbett, the New York Times standards editor, wrote in January. The memo was written because the Times is constantly criticized for not crediting other smaller publications with scoops. And the fact that Corbett wrote it is pretty telling. The memo reads, linking routinely to the work of others can erase the perception, often exaggerated but not altogether wrong, that the Times can be aloof, self-obsessed, and ungenerous in acknowledging the work of others. That perception feeds on itself with each oversight or missed opportunity. Social media is full of complaints by fellow journalists who claim we refuse to acknowledge their work or, worse yet, pilfer their idea. Failing to link might suggest to some suspicious minds that we are concealing our reliance on others. As I said a second ago, David, I almost think the fact that Corbett wrote that memo is an acknowledgement that the Times has a problem in doing this. Yeah. And or at least, you know, maybe this is one of those quote unquote here are my giant air quotes bad look situations. But the fact yeah. that you have that you're having to put that in people's email boxes tells me that it's something and it, and it's mm-hmm. a real thing. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, listen, anybody that's worked in um, journalism or probably any just about any walk of life will recognize the sort of um, uh, tone and demeanor of that uh, copy desk note or the, the best practices <laughs> note that went around um, where it's a li- the, the, the chipperness of it sort of belies the the uh, the gravity of the situation or at least the mm-hmm. the earnestness, the earnestness of the plea. Um an interesting thing that the story about you know this 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 story kind of gets into is that, um, I mean as this memo clearly shows there there are forces within the New York Times I mean many important people in New York Times who are very pro crediting and pro linking and everything else but it's a sort of the old guard in the, of the edit, on the editorial desk that's still there that sort of turns up their noses at it or is just otherwise oblivious to the practice um, and and therefore reluctant to do it. Um, but you're right to make this distinction because between those two sort of things, because the, it 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 can it can sort of cloud the issue here, right? I mean, there's no greater sport than claiming credit for something on Twitter. You know, I mean, there, I mean that that's that seems to be what Twitter's made for is just like we have a whole segment on the show dedicated to overworked Twitter jokes that people are making these jokes at the same time. It's there's no shortage of conversation that goes on about how. Uh, every idea that you had that you thought was unique, you know, that the, the problem with social media is that now you know that like a hundred other people had the same idea. But, you know, there's a lot of people who will see a story that is 
clearly in the you know ether or else why would you have thought of it but then someone else comes out with a similar story a couple weeks later and it's just you know just outrage uh, online outrage about someone stealing ideas and that's understandable but that's a separate thing um that you know getting down to sort of brass tacks of like should the new york times be actively crediting people that they influence I mean that that are that, that are influent that influence them. I mean, yes, of course they should. There's there's no question at all. Um, no. And I think that, like, frankly, I mean, I'm sure that there's a lot. Maybe this is revealing too much, but it seems like the 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 hyper the the bare minimum of the hyperlink is like is not nearly enough in a lot of cases, but is often it, it's often the sort of like the the, the cheap way of citing of, of crediting somebody, and the fact that totally. that's part of what the New York Times is the most averse to. Is a little bit odd. I mean, I mean, again, I understand the old guard's point of view. I understand that's or that that's the problem. But like, you know, the hyperlink. If you're influenced by the work of someone else, a hyperlink is not enough credit to 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 them and to and to what and to that whatever work they've done before. But like, that should be that 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 should be the bare minimum. There's also this interesting copy question about how you can like how if there's a if there's a hyperlink online, does that have to translate into something else in the printed form and and everything else? But um, I don't know. This is just a great story. It's a juicy story for people in the business, and and you know, it's it's funny. Of course, the New York Times is the one taking the hits. Well, right, you're right. It it sort of combines Times pomposity and you know this this lingering idea, which is probably less less of a thing now than it was you know ten, twenty, thirty years ago. But this idea that it's when w- we do it, that is the definitive version. And we heart, you know, you heart, we, we only grudgingly need to cite anyone else. It combines that with, you know, as you say, this kind of Twitter, you know, we're going to hold you to account and, and make everyone know exactly what this is. A couple of examples in that were cited here were sort of amazing. You know, April Glazer of Slate broke news of Kickstarter unionizing. The Times didn't mention her work and right. its piece about that until they were kind of shamed into doing though. A Times writer crowed on Twitter, quote, my definitive account of the In-N-Out burger that appeared on a random street in Queens. It was saying that jokingly. But in fact, Vice had written about the burger before and that story was, was widely shared. <laughs> the... um. This was an amazing one because everybody was everyone was was sharing and in, in journalism was sharing their how I got you know how I didn't get enough credit story. This one really struck me. It was by a journalist named Emily Gundelsberger. Uh, she wrote a book or has a book new book out called On the Clock, which is about her taking low wage jobs, including one at an Amazon fulfillment center, and writing about what they're really like. She thought that journalists were were kind of reporting these things secondhand and didn't understand them. Well, the New Yorker's Charles Duhigg was writing a big piece about Amazon, and he calls up Gundelsberger, he interviews her, and gets all these very vivid inside the fulfillment center details that she gathered and put in her book. But when the New Yorker article comes out, it treats Gundelsberger like she's this former random Amazon employee. Yeah. It never mentions the book in 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 the article. And at one place in the article, it, she's referred to not by name as a, quote, former warehouse employee, making it sound like Duhigg knows has cultivated all these sources that worked in Amazon warehouses rather than a journalist who was working in the warehouse to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, Duhigg and she and Duhigg had this exchange during fact checking and Duhigg says, well, the New Yorker's kind of weird about mentioning book titles. But. 
you know, that's one of those cases. Like, I don't know what the style is, but the style needs to be changed so that you can mention that this this woman wrote it. Current, and again, not some ancient book has a book out about this right now. And that deserves to be mentioned. Wait, that was in the New York Times? That was in the New Yorker. The New Yorker. Okay. Well, that does, yes. I guess that sort of, that sort of, I mean, listen. Same principle. We, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, we've long joked about the great New Yorker essay uh, tendency to like, you know, get eight thousand words into a philosophical debate with oneself before you before it's revealed that this is based on the the publication of a recent book, um, <laughs> and all the details are from the book. Yeah, everything like, <laughs> everything I, you've I, just read. I was read just is... thinking about Charles Darwin the other day, and then yeah, yeah. nineteen paragraphs in. Oh, I, I I read this Charles Darwin biography, and here it is. Um, but. I mean, yeah, I mean, it is, it is the same principle. Here, I mean, one, uh, one can imagine the philosophical argument here, at least in the New York Times point of view, where it's like, is this, I mean, is the story that we're covering a factual thing or is it like, a, or is it like an opinion-based thing? Well, if it's a factual, if, if in fact this building is being built on this block uh, and, if in, and if in fact everything we put in it is based on original reporting, then I'm not sure that we need to cite like, you know, Upper East Side blog for like the tip, right? I mean, that I, I can understand. Mm. I can, I, I don't, I don't, ag- I don't agree with it, but I understand. But, but like, I can understand like the string of logic that gets you there. But right. a lot, but a lot of these, st- a lot of these conversations are about really unique ideas that would not have floated, that would not have bubbled up, you know, without another source. And regardless, I mean, it's just. It's it's just a sort of common courtesy. I think that that in a world in which the New York Times is your only source of information, it might only slow you down. I mean that I mean to 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 have to read through all the the you know the the series of footnotes that 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 get you to the to the the lead of the piece, all the citations of of, of who came before. But that's a very old timey way of looking at things. If that's the argument, right? That like that you that that you're concerned about the reader or concerned about or or it's just the New York Times has some sort of propriety. I mean, in this day and age, it's very easy to to cite things, and I think people are more interested in everything that came before. I mean, they're more they're more interested in in the the way that stories are built and told. So I, it just seems really kind of ridiculous to not be doing it at this point. It's it's almost impossible to drop any rules about this because the rules would have to be so intricate about when you cite somebody and when you don't, and and you know. When does it count that it was on a blog? What if it counts if I re-reported it? If I if I if I move the ball right, it just gets so. So this is why I go back to the Curtis rule of intra-journalistic relations, which is don't be an asshole. Just don't <laughs> yeah. be an asshole. If you're worried when you're writing it that you're being an asshole, and this is I'm I'm, I'm quoting something that was actually in uh, Phil Corbett's memo because he said if you're asking whether you have to link, you probably have to link. If you're worried when you're writing that you're possibly being an asshole, you're being an asshole. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that anymore. Right. Um, that's, that's the rule. That's it. That's the only rule that's ever going to work because this is all self-policed, right? There's some cases where it appeared in another part the times just flat got beat on a scoop and where it's obvious, you know, you're going to have to say this news was first reported in the wall street journal. Then there's this giant gray area below that where it's like, eh, do I have to cite them? Do I not have to cite them? Don't be an asshole. They, trust me, this will solve everybody's problems. Just don't be an asshole. Because <laughs> we all we all know, you know when you're doing that or you know when you're tempted to do that. Don't do that. Stop that. 
do do a citation, do a, do a generous link and uh, credit the other publication and move on. That is, that is my rule. I don't know. I don't know how else to say it because everything else is too complicated. Uh, I, I think that's exactly the right way to say it. If everybody was just determined to not be an asshole, the world would be a better place. And, and journalism in particular. If we grant all those grievances that we just mentioned are completely justified and real, I, I, do, I would love to do this. I would love to have access to the psychology department at a state university at some point. And I'd put a whole bunch of journalists in a room and I'd put up on the screen a Times article that ripped off their scoop without credit. Okay. And I'd record their responses. And then I'd show the same journalists <laughs> a Times story that properly credited their scoop. And I'd record their responses because I think even for the second group, they would say a version of the first response. They wouldn't They wouldn't be mad at the Times for not crediting. They'd just say, well, when is the Times going to hire me instead of that hack that they had to write in the story? You know? Yeah. Like, part of being a journalist is feeling people never adequately appreciate how great you are. And we find all the time, the more successful journalists get, they, they just, they even, they, they actually, that gets worse. It doesn't get better when they sell books or do whatever, you know, be successful. So I just feel all, I mean, to me is like, as somebody who writes about the press and who sits in the ringer newsroom and hears complaints like this all the time, it's funny because it's just this giant, it is part of the psychology of this thing. Cause you're competing against everybody. You know, even if you're not really, you know, chasing what the news out of the White House, you are competing with people for ideas and angles and things like that. And so that's just part of the mindset. Again, I'm not denigrating any of the actual examples there. And I just want to repeat, please don't be an asshole. Anybody. Uh, David, I have it down. We need to talk about Tulsi Gabbard and Hillary Clinton. Oh, man. Yeah. Last week, Clinton was on David Pluff's campaign HQ podcast. My goodness, there is some dramatic, doomy theme music for that podcast I found out this week when I was doing the segment. Uh, Pluff asked Clinton about Trump winning re-election with a relatively small percentage of the vote in key states. Listen to how Clinton thinks Trump will pull that off. They're also going to do third party again. And I'm not making any predictions, but I think they've got their eye on somebody who's currently in the Democratic <laughs> primary and are grooming her to be the third party candidate. She's a favorite of the Russians. They have a bunch of sites and bots and other ways of supporting her mm -hmm. so far. And that's assuming Jill Stein will give it up, which she might not because she's also a Russian right. uh, asset. Yeah. yeah, she's a Russian asset. I mean, totally. And so they know they can't win without a third party candidate. And so I don't know who it's going to be, but I will guarantee you they'll have a vigorous third party challenge in the key states that they most need it. Before we get to the Gabbard part of this, should we just reflect on the Hillary Clinton part of this? Yeah, please. Hillary, who's obviously has not endorsed anybody yet. Um, it'd be interesting to see who who and under what circumstances people would accept that endorsement. Staying out of the specific fray of the Democratic primary wades in <laughs> to call Jill Stein and by extension Tulsi Gabbard Russian assets. <laughs> and there's a third party point there that makes a lot of sense, right? That you have a candidate in Gabbard who's clearly alienated from the Democratic establishment. Her brand is being alienated from the Democratic establishment. Clinton goes, pushes beyond that and says, this is, you know, essentially this is a plan by the Russians to 
make her a third party candidate and, you know, eat off just enough Democratic support to help Trump get reelected in the Midwest. What do we make of that? Um, <laughs> well, I have to admit, the first, wait, I, I found out about this news uh, because I got a, a couple of text messages congratulating me for being on the cutting edge of this because I guess I had offhandedly referred to Tulsi Gabbard as a Russian asset <laughs> in the past. Did you say that on this pod? I don't know if I've said it on this podcast or just yeah. in conversation or what. I think that why, her... Why did we get credit? Yeah. I can't believe David Pluff getting all the credit. Um, I don't know that... I'm not sure that she's actually a resident, a resident asset. I don't have the, quite the assurance that Hillary <laughs> Clinton does. endorsement. Uh, I'm not sure she's actually a Russian and, asset. Nothing, nothing has given me more. Nothing has given me more pause in this, in that, in this theory than Hillary Clinton agreeing with me. I shall say that. But, um, but, uh, you know, I don't. But, but, it, but it is a sort of. I don't know. I, I think it's a slightly useful uh, shorthand for whatever the heck's going on with her. I mean, I, I don't. I, she's a very confusing candidate, and um, a lot of a lot of people, uh, I think, feel the same way. Um, certainly, her. Uh, uh, perceived affinity for Bashar al-Assad is is puzzling to just about everybody. Um, uh, and, and generally, her foreign policy, uh, some of the moves that she's made, uh, even over the past what, 12 months, have been um, not the moves one would expect of someone running for the Democratic nomination for president. Um, you can go back to, I believe, this summer's uh, the, the, a New Yorker profile of her. What does Tulsi Gabbard believe that just is... Um, about 10,000 words of just like an implied uh, parenthetical question mark, I guess. Like it, there's just a lot of, I mean, obviously it's it's right there in the headline, but there's just a whole lot of like, like what is going on right now? Like I'm, I'm not even sure what the words I'm writing down are supposed to mean. Um, it's a very, very good piece, by the way. I'm not trying to dismiss it at all. Um, just the opposite. Uh, but it's, but I mean, it. the fact that Hillary Clinton just straight up said it like that, is uh pretty shocking and i and i and maybe that's commendable if that's true if she believes that with great certainty um but i think that the reaction from most people is probably going to be something along the lines of uh tarring people painting people with the uh accusation of being russian assets is not any more helpful than than Russia trying to influence the election themselves. Does that make right. sense? Well, you, no, I think that's right. And you can see her, you can see her calculation, right? Cause she's trying to get the second message out. She's trying to get guys, the whole, that podcast is very Russia heavy for Clinton, who obviously is understandably <laughs> worried and upset about Russian interference in the election. So she's trying to say, look, this is happening again. Mitch McConnell and company don't want to protect us from this. Uh, also be on the lookout for the way Trump is going to win. This is by having a third party peel off just enough support um, then, but she's balancing that with actually calling Gabbard a Russian asset. So that was a weird, that was a very <laughs> weird calculation. It was, I guess it was the best thing to happen to Gabbard because as we saw, she was, you know, supposed to sort of troll everyone at the last democratic debate. It mostly ended with her, asking a very vague question to Warren about her readiness to be president and then CNN throwing it to a commercial. But she took the Clinton bit and ran with it. She Gabbard writes on Twitter. Great. Thank you, Hillary Clinton. 
You, the queen of warmongers, embodiment of corruption and personification of the rot that has sickened the Democratic Party for so long, have finally come out from behind the curtain. From the day I announced my candidacy, there has been a concerted campaign to destroy my reputation. We wondered who was behind it and why. Now we know it was always you, through your proxies and powerful allies in the corporate media and war machine, afraid of the threat I pose. It's now clear that this primary is between you and me. Don't cowardly hide behind your proxies. Join the race directly. If you thought <sighs> Trump had used some literary license to write to Turkish President Erdogan, David, I got news for you. <laughs> Tulsi Tulsi Gabbard has an even more amazing literary style. I I think that to me is the, the I don't know kind of the the most kind of frustrating part about this is like I think Hillary Clinton is maybe the worst possible messenger for this accusation, even if it were proven to be a hundred percent true. That like all of the people, the people who are going to the people who are going to potentially propel Tulsi Gabbard to any kind of success are people who are like already just like just despise Hillary Clinton you know and I, and and I uh I'm not even sure they're particularly affiliated with the party I think an you know independent bid might might be more, might be an interesting I mean I don't think she would win but it, it it might have some teeth I just think at some point Clinton has got to realize that you know I mean, maybe maybe this is a case where it's one of those things where if you say it out loud, then it becomes it becomes appropriate for other people to say it too, and she's taking that hit. But I think overall, I think weirdly, Tulsi's response feels a lot more uh, significant to what's going to follow than what Hillary said. Yeah, I mean, it was like I said, if you're if you're Gabbard, and you know, and a pretty explicit part of your candidacy is the Democrat, the DNC is corrupt. And, you know, the Democrats have gotten us into these ruinous foreign wars, having Hillary Clinton come out and, you know, sort of be the personification of that idea. Yeah. Is definitely happy for you again on those crazy terms. I'm also sort I am interested in what you're talking about, which is this kind of idea of Hillary unplugged, which has happened in dribs and drabs since, you know, basically her formal career as a candidate ended with the 2016 mm -hmm. campaign. Yeah. I couldn't help but notice that she posted a parody letter on Twitter on Sunday, and it was a parody of Trump's letter to Erdogan that we just mentioned, except this is John Kennedy writing to Nikita Khrushchev during the Cuban Missile Crisis. I'm not, I'm not kidding. This is actually on, on Twitter. Dear Premier Khrushchev, don't be a dick, okay? Get your missiles out of Cuba. <laughs> Every, and on, on and on. You're really busting my nuts here. Give me a jingle later. Hugs. John Fitzgerald Kennedy. So <laughs> at some level, Hillary has just decided like I'm going all in on comedy, right? I'm sure. <laughs> just, I'm a, I'm a political satirist at this point. Um, and, and I guess good for her. It's funny. I just, I, I guess I have some sympathy for her because every time she says something, I feel everybody gets mad, you know? Every it's, you know, Democrats are still mad about 2016 uh, Democrats who are running now are like, please don't interfere in there. Or please just don't say anything. Cause that'll just mess up this chessboard even more. I have some measure of sympathy that she just can't get a statement out of her mouth without it becoming, you know, without everybody just losing their minds. 
I had that. I, I can. I think that's reasonable sympathy. Uh, I'm not sure what the imperative for her to go on David Pluff's podcast was, though, and to say to for this to be the platform to say these things. Maybe it's the perfect platform. Maybe I'm a luddite who doesn't understand what podcasts are. But uh, she's kind of been on the media circuit, right? I saw her. With- yeah. With Chelsea doing something the other day. Sure. Oh yeah. No. No. She. No. She's around. I just like. I. It just seems like. I. I don't know. It just seems like a very serious accusation to make. Um, but who knows? Maybe it's that's just me. Before we get out of here, let's spend a little time on Donald Trump and Doralgate, because the president announced he was going to hold June's Group yeah. of Seven summit at the Doral, his own Doral Golf Club in New York, in Florida. Excuse me. Uh, that seemed like self dealing. And by late Saturday afternoon, the New York Times reports Trump had changed his mind, but, quote, he waited to announce the reversal until that night in two tweets that were separated by a break he took to watch the opening of Janine Pirro's Fox News program. So Trump announces (laughs) that, in fact, the G7 will not uh, take place at Durrell. And then, you know, we all take a moment. You watch the beginning of Janine Pirro and and then finish the tweet. The hilarious side note here, David, is that Acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney went out and gave that disastrous press conference last week, partly or fully because he was talking about the the venue for the G7. And then in passing admits the quid pro quo at the heart of the Trump Ukraine scandal while talking about the venue. So if we follow the bouncing ball here, Trump had a bad idea. Uh, of hosting world leaders at his own property. His acting chief of staff in the process of defending the idea admitted to a possibly impeachable offense, and then Trump just canceled the bad idea anyway. <laughs> Did I miss anything? Well, if you well if you put it that way, um, <laughs> there's there's also the interesting like sub uh, subplot that like uh, that that Mulvaney is of course still acting chief of staff, not actually chief of staff. Um, That's true. A lot of but his actual job is that he's the what, the budget director? Is that is that his title? That's correct. The uh, the, the office of management and budget. Yes, and and so it would be. Uh, I think I, I now I believe I have this subplot. I believe I had this teased out correctly that it would be utterly implausible that he did not uh, that he was not involved in the actual you know budgetary process to, for searching out these different these various venues, which they may or may not have actually. Uh, priced out and that there's and there's actually there's like a significant conflict in like the president knowing any of these things so like the idea that his budget director and chief of staff are the same person is incredibly problematic in this whole situation too um it but but going to back to what you said yeah i mean this one is i think um uh, to quote myself from last week um this is one of those times where it's really hard to figure out what the 3D chess move is, right? I mean, I just don't, <laughs> I don't, like, I can get, I could wrap my head around, I could just about wrap my head around, we're going to use Ukraine as a distraction to get Doral as the site of the G7 or vice versa. Um, I'm not exactly sure what the, what it is if you're willing to back down. And also, I don't know of all of the things that Trump has done, I find it hard to believe that he was convinced that Dur- that he could that that having the trying to have the G seven at Doral is a is a is a bad enough move to back out. Okay, I mean you, that-, that you've hit on an interesting thing, and I think this that the Times piece goes into this because it says 
The president first heard the criticism of his choice at the Doral while watching TV, where even some Fox News personalities were disproving. Times goes on to say that Mulvaney, who was with a bunch of moderate Republicans at Camp David, and when the president called, Mulvaney informs the president, hey, these Republicans are even uneasy about this and don't want to defend you on this. So have we just reached a point with impeachment, Ukraine, Syria, where Republicans won't defend him and Trump's ability to have bad ideas and execute them actually does depend at least partly on on Republicans or Fox News personalities defending him, right? So if that goes away as it kind of has in the last week or so, that he actually can't execute bad ideas? He needs that political cover? Okay, well, this is really interesting because, one, he specifically cited the Democrats and their allies in the media as the reason why he no. couldn't... No, no, but it's, but, no, 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 but it's interesting that the actual culprits here were the Republicans and their allies in the media, right? I mean, if that's, in fact, why he had mm-hmm. to back off of this, uh, that, that it was just like, that was, like, diametrically wrong. Um, it's also... Uh, it's also interesting because I guess my theory would have been that with all of, with all of, I mean, that that this is just sort of a straw that broke the camel's back sort of situation. That with everything else going on, there's finally people who have, you know, who are like, you've gone too far, right? I mean, that would I guess be like the sort of like morally what we would hope or what we might assume is going on right now. But it's a it's it's kind of quietly the the opposite. It's like there's probably a lot of people out there on Fox News, because I've watched some of this coverage who are dissenting from the Doral decision because they don't have the guts to dissent from the from the more important stuff, and they want to make it sound like they're even-handed. Um, I wonder how much of that is what's going on and how much of that is what he's hearing, right? Because I'm not sure that Doral is really going to, would really be that much of a problem for anybody sitting in Congress, but if they want to seem like they're, they're, they're not taking it easy on Trump, even though they are, then maybe, maybe backing, maybe dis, d- disagreeing with Doral for the G7 is a, is a sort of safe uh, protest. And this imperative to at least appear somewhat even-handed is happening because of impeachment? Yeah. they didn't need to appear even-handed about him for the first couple of years. It wasn't yeah, like, but, I mean, oh, you know, I have my problems with Trump. It was mostly... I mean, listen, even Fox, even, no, no, but, you, but I've seen some of this on Fox News, and, and, and you really do get the impression that up until last week that they might have kind of reached the logical conclusion of like guffawing away impeachment investigate the impeachment investigation right i mean like literally there are li- fox news hosts would literally laugh about it and at some point they say impeachment enough times in a given day that you have to have some sort of gravity to what you're discussing and maybe it's i mean and and maybe that's the that's the way they balance it out even as they sort of dismiss this as russiagate part 2 the, in, the impeachment part that is Part of our answer to the question of why, what is the 3D chess move here? I go to this quote that Mulvaney had on one of the Sunday shows. At the end of the day, he said, Trump still considers himself to be in the hospitality business, dot, dot, dot. So I I think the simple answer is Trump wants to promote Trump properties to other powerful people. And that's the end of it. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's a distraction or whatever. I think he just, he, he, he and this is a problem. If you're the president of the United States, he is still in the real estate business. <laughs> I mean, that's, that is, that is part of what we've all been saying is, a, is, is a big problem for a long time, but that's yeah. what he thinks. Why wouldn't I happen to my fabulous resort and fabulous <laughs> golf club 
in Florida. Uh, I loved also this tweet by our pal Stephen Shepard at Politico. Biggest fold at Doral since Phil against Tiger in the final group in 2005. <laughs> this is not nice. Excellent stuff. All right. Time for David Shoemaker. Guess is a strained pun headline. Okay. Last Friday's pun tweet was, or excuse me, pun headline was Deus Ex Machina. Remember that one? Deus Ex Machina. Um, <laughs> I was up at Lake Arrowhead with the family this weekend up here in California. And David, I grabbed the local paper, which is called the Mountain News. And wouldn't you know it, right there on page one below the fold was a strained pun headline. Oh, my the God. The story is, yep, story is by Nick Kipley, who also took the pictures. Uh, it's a nice piece about a local woman named Barbara Doubt, whose kidneys stopped functioning. She had to have a kidney transplant. Her daughter, Amy Shero, became part of something called the Paired Kidney Exchange, where you agree to donate a kidney to someone who needs it, and then someone else will agree to donate a kidney to someone else who needs it, in this case, her mom. Anyway, everybody seems to be doing well. The Mountain News reported this story of kidney transplants with a, wow, can you believe that, style headline. So, David, what is the Lake Arrowhead Mountain News's strained pun headline? god wow can you believe that yeah that style you got one word you're playing off here is it doubt or no. is it kidney kidney uh kid uh is it like a kidney believe it or uh are you kidney are you uh, no is oh, that it oh, 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 oh. that was almeida almeida just jumped in off the top rope are you kidney you've got to be kidney me <laughs> i'm gonna give i'm giving this one to chris he you can gotta have be it. kidding me. He can have it. This is a bat. What a magical moment! First the student pun becomes headline. the teacher. This is great. Oh my I gosh! My Con- career. There you go. Congrats to Chris and congrats to the Mountain News uh, for that one. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Research by the number one champion, Chris Almeida. Production magic by Jim Cunningham. We're back Friday, bright and early, with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. I'm going all in on comedy. (laughs) I was up at Lake Arrowhead with family this weekend up here in California. Oh, my God. And, David, I grabbed the local paper, which is called the Mountain News. Um, And wouldn't you know it, right there on page one below the fold. Oh, my God. The hilarious side note here, David, is Uh, that don't be an asshole. (laughs) Just don't be an asshole. Maybe that's just me. We all know you know when you're doing that. Uh, to quote myself from last week, um, I don't know what I'm doing. Don't cowardly hide behind your proxies. I'm not sure what the. Im- wow, can you believe that? Well, if you well if you put it that way, um, there's. I'm not, I'm not kidding. I guess the first question is: Is this a big deal, or will this potentially turn into a big deal? Uh. You, the queen of warmongers. Maybe I'm a Luddite who doesn't understand what podcasts are. Don't be a dick, okay? Get your missiles out of Cuba (laughs) without it becoming, you know, without everybody just losing their minds. Uh, I, I think that's exactly the right way to say it. David, I got news for you. Yeah, please. At the end of the day... Being an asshole. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that anymore. <laughs>
and I just want to repeat, please don't be an asshole. Anyway. I don't agree with it. Mm-hmm. Just too stupid to understand. Come, please, please. Aloof, self-obsessed, and ungenerous. Right. Really, really dense. Uh, Did I miss it? How to put this tactfully. Uh, fuck that guy. You're really busting my nuts here. Give me a jingle later. Hugs.